So, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been afraid? In 2016, my wife and I and uh, our 18-month-old little girl, Gabriella, decided to go out west. We'd never been out west. We wanted to go just see the sights, and we walked through the Gila uh, cave dwellings, and we went to see some of the amazing, amazing national parks, national treasures, really, that we have around uh, our country. We went to the Grand Canyon. And sometimes you don't know what you're afraid of until you experience it, right? What I discovered at the Grand Canyon is that I'm scared of heights. What I also discovered is that my wife is not. And she had our 18-month-old backpack on the back of her back and she was walking around and she really felt like it would, that she needed to see what was on the other side of the cliffs. So she's walking around looking over the edge and I am holding onto that backpack, white knuckling it, looking for somebody else to hold onto on the other side, right? Because sometimes when we are afraid, we just white knuckle it as we're kind of out on the limb. As we're trying to figure out what's going on. And it just paralyzes us. Have you ever been afraid? Would you turn to the person next to you and tell them what your greatest fear is? I'll give you three seconds. Ready? Go. <laughs> For some of you, you're like, my greatest fear is turning to the person next to me and telling them what my greatest fear is. <laughs> right? So here's the deal. All of us have phobias, which are just extreme or irrational fear. There are lots of things that we're afraid of that we could be diagnosed with in this room today. But I'm going to give you some phobias. I'm not going to pronounce them because I honestly I can't. I'm from Indiana. But um, I want you to guess what that phobia is, and I'll tell you the answer. Are you ready? Okay, the first one. I'll pronounce this one. Globophobia. Anybody know what that is? Okay, it is... Fear of balloons. <laughs> okay, the next one. Anybody know? It is fear of being watched by a duck. <laughs> Real thing. Next one. Anybody know? Okay, it is fear of your mother-in-law. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Anybody know what this weird word is? Can anybody pronounce it? It is the fear of long words. How would you like to go to a diagnosis and your doctor lists this long word and you're like, Doc, I can't take it anymore. Nomophobia. Anybody know what that is? It is fear of losing mobile phone service. <laughs> yes, we've all experienced that living around here. I hate being afraid because being afraid paralyzes me and it steals... My ability to act and I feel pow powerless. You ever felt that way? I wish I could be more like my daughter, Gabriella, who when she was three years old had this incredible fear of hand dryers. And there's a moment when we stopped at a rest stop on one of our trips where she was able to overcome this. And I want you to watch what happens. What did you do? Oh, I am so proud of you. I'm um, so proud, Daddy. I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it. I, I can't believe it. First time. Way to face your fears, buddy. Good Get job. To the right. Never happened. How good. Good job. Never happened. I just ever, yeah. ever done. Boom, baby. Boom, baby. <laughs> 
What you don't get to see in that video is right after I stopped recording, she said, Daddy, I couldn't have done it without you. And her mom, who was driving, is like, you literally did it without him. I'm the one who took you to the bathroom. <laughs> but don't we wish that we could face our fears with that kind of courage and strength and excitement? Well, today's story that we're going to be covering, it's going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, your mobile devices, and just kind of hold your place because we're going to get back to it in a second. This story is a story of fear. And if you haven't been here for the last several weeks, as Pastor Joe has led us through the life and the story of Elijah, I encourage you to go back, watch them. Powerful, powerful messages. And you're not going to want to miss next week either. But before we get into the story in 1 Kings chapter 19, I feel like I need to give you some background so that you can understand the true nature of what's going on in this story. 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 through 31, this is what we read. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidians. And he began to bow down and worship to Baal. Now there's some significant clues in this text that we need to follow because it's going to be helpful to our, to our understanding of what's going to happen. First off... It's significant that the writer includes the name Jezebel. By the way, her name doesn't, you won't find it anywhere on the top 100 girl names for baby names. I'm just saying. It's significant because the chroniclers of the north, northern kingdom of Israel don't mention any other king's wife in reciting the list of kings except for the name Jezebel. Right away, that tells us there's something significant about this woman, that there's something powerful, that's, that she has a great, great impact on what's happening at the time in that nation. The second thing is that Jezebel's dad's name is significant. Eth Baal means with Baal. He was the king of Sidian, which is in modern-day Lebanon, which was one of the great cities of the Phoenician Empire. And obviously, by his name, we understand that the worship that they worshipped... Both Jezebel and her father and the, the city and nation, the idol Baal. As Chuck Swindoll notes, this is so interesting that Baal worship originated with the Canaanites and had been around the area, but the actual worship of Baal didn't enter into the hearts of the Israelites until King Ahab marries Jezebel and brings her to his palace in Israel. So we know who Jezebel is. We know what her father's name, Eth Baal, means, with Baal. And now God brings a hero into the story to help fight for the hearts and the minds of the Hebrew nation. And his name is Elijah. And do you know what Elijah's name means? My God is Yahweh. Now this is so important to the story because right away we need to understand that this isn't just a story about a rugged prophet and a wicked queen. This isn't just a story about fighting that's going to take place between these two faiths. Right away what we understand is this is a battle between the living God of Israel and the Phoenician idol Baal. This is a fight for the supremacy of of those who are called God's people. We saw this play out last week in HD 4K, right? 
Pastor Joe did a fantastic job talking about what happened on Mount Carmel. Do you remember? I'll just give you just a little recap. You had Elijah, who believed he was the only prophet of God, against the 450 prophets of Baal and Asherah on top of this huge mountain. The people of the the nation of Israel had all come out to see which God was alive and which God was real. You remember, for hours, these false prophets cut themselves and cried out to their idol as Elijah sat there and watched and, and also mocked them. And then he stands before God, he stands before the people, he stands before everyone, and he prays a prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice, and God sends fire from the sky, which incinerates the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the water that they had put in the trench around the sacrifice, and even the dust. It was an amazing, amazing moment. And then we see that God... After his, this great victory, the people rise up and they take the 450 prophets of Baal and Asherah and they take them down into the Kishon Valley where they execute them. Now you would think that this guy Elijah, after this incredible victory, remember it's been three years that this battle has been raging, would be able to kick back, relax, watch a little ESPN, maybe the Super Bowl on TV. But it's not to be. And then we read this in 1 Kings chapter 19. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way that he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. And I can picture this in my mind's eye. Ahab gets home from the mount. The, the mountain competition. Now, I don't know why she didn't go, but apparently she stayed back at the palace. And I can just hear her say, how did it go today on the mountain with all of my prophets? And I can just tell you that, that Baal must have won because uh, obviously it's, it's a big deal. I mean, it's finally rained after three years. I just knew as soon as that crazy Elijah was out of the picture that Baal would bring rain to our crops again. Man, it must have been an amazing sight. So how did it go? Yeah, about that. And then he tells her exactly what happened and what happened to all of the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And she is enraged. She has a bloodthirst. She is hateful. She is angry. And she swears vengeance against the prophet of God. And she meant it. It's not the first time in Scripture that we we read that she had killed one of God's prophets. It's not the first time in Scripture that we read that she had killed the people of God when she arrived in town. And so when Elijah hears this, he believes her and that she's doubling down because she wants blood. In verse 3 we read, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Now this verse has always perplexed me when I study this story. This dude, it just seems God send fire from the sky and incinerate the sacrifice. He's seen God's amazing victories. Over the last three years, we've seen him trust and show incredible faith in God. And with the word of one woman who says that she is going to end his life, he runs away in fear. And he runs and he runs and he runs. From Jezreel all the way to Beersheba. Let me show you where that is. He runs from here all the way down to there. It's 100 miles. Who knows? He may have been the first ultra marathoner that we, we read of. But what inspires him to run so long and so far? It's fear. Right? 
John Ortberg notes that the word fear comes from the old English word for danger. And that makes a lot of sense. When we face or we sense fear, we either go into the flight or fight mode, right? Our bodies begin to respond. In fact, the fear response starts in a region of the brain called the amygdala which activates areas involved in preparation for motor function involved in fight or flight. The brain becomes hyper alert. The pupils dilate so that we can take in as much as possible. The bronchi dilate and breathing accelerates. The heart rate and the blood pressure rise. Blood flow and stream of glucose to the skeletal muscles increase. Organs, organs not vital for survival, such as gastrointestinal system and reproductive system, begin to slow down. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever experienced that? And his fear, the anxiety just drives him. Now, we've all experienced fear in our life. Fortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about fear. Let me ask you a question. I want you to try to answer it with the person next to you, unless your greatest fear is turning to the person next to you and answering questions. But this is the question I want you to ask. What do you think, what would you guess is the most common command in Scripture? Not the most important command, but the most common command in Scripture. Ready? I'll give you three seconds. Ready? Go. A couple people over here got it. The most common command in Scripture is fear not. In fact, someone said that there are 365 commands to fear not, one for every day of the year. I wonder why God doesn't want us to be afraid. John Ortberg writes, fear disrupts faith and becomes the biggest obstacle to trusting and obeying God. But I think there's something else. I think that when we're afraid that God wants to remind us that He's in control. He wants us to rest in the confidence that He is with us no matter what we face. If the most common command in Scripture is fear not, what do you think the most frequent promise in the Bible is? Go ahead. Anybody? I will be with you. Maybe that's one of the reasons I love the Gospel of Matthew, because in the very beginning, all the way through the book, the, the, the autobiography, this Gospel, to the very end, God is reminding His people, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. John Ortberg writes, and God is closer than you think, when God Himself came to earth, His redemptive name was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And when Jesus left, His promise was to send the Spirit so that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And friends, if you're afraid today, what God is saying to you this morning is no matter what you face, no matter what fear you have, no, how, no matter how much overwhel how overwhelmed you feel, the God of creation who knit you together in your mother's womb is with you today. He will stand against giants. He will stand against um, false narratives. He will st stand against those who wish to hurt you or harm you or destroy your name. He will stand with you and be with you no matter what surgeries you're facing, no matter what sickness you're dealing with, no matter what dysfunction is in your life. And believe me, we all have dysfunction. The God of all creation who loves you and who calls you your chi His child is with you today. So for a moment, let's just talk about another type of fear that I think impacts us, and it's called anxiety. Anxiety is a special form of fear. Our fear that we face when our bodies react is usually caused by an external force. 
but anxiety is produced from the inside. In other words, we begin to internalize some worry or some fear. And instead of dealing with our fear occasionally, we become anxious habitually. A lot of us struggle with this. An article in the New York Times magazine cited research that indicates people have a strong predisposition towards fear and anxiety that it's apparently genetic. Did you know that? In fact, uh, they have even located the gene. It's SLC 6A4 gene on chromosome 17Q12. And what they discovered is that people who have a shorter version of this gene tend to be more predisposed to anxiety than people with the longer version of this gene. And there are some of you in this room who are sitting here right now worried about whether your gene is short or long. (laughs) Working definition for anxiety is, is a fear of what might happen. Recently, there was a study of Gen Xers. And Gen Xers are the group of people who were born in the mid-1990s to the early 2000s. They make up about 33% of the world's population, 4.6 billion of them, which is the largest population in the world right now. They were asked, they were said, what are the three things that you are most afraid of? Do you know what number three on that list was? Mental health issues. Mental health issues ranked above body image, grades, or getting into college. And friends, the reality is, is they have a good reason to be anxious about being anxious, right? Did you know that the United States has been proclaimed the most anxious country in the world? We struggle with anxiety five times more than any other country in the world. Other countries only experience one-fifth the level of anxiety that we do. And what's amazing is that when people immigrate to this country, guess what? They catch up with us. They become just as anxious as we are. Which tells us that there's just something about the way that we live life that causes anxiety. Now I want you to hear this. Because this statistic is so telling about anxiety in our culture today. Psychologist Robert Leahy points out that the average child... The average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. And some of you who have young kids are wondering why your kids are so anxious. So why are we such an anxious people? What do you think it is? Researchers speculate that change has a large part to do with that. Did you know that in the last 30 years there has been more change than all of the 300 years before that? Beyond that, we live in a 24-hour news cycle. As Max Lucado writes in his book, Anxious for Nothing, in our grandparents' generation, news of an earthquake in Nepal would reach around the world in just a couple of days. In our parents' day, the nightly news would update us on the world's going on. Today, we receive news in a matter of minutes after a catastrophe has happened. In our grandparents' generation, we would have the opportunity to process one catastrophe before we have to deal with the next one. But guess what? In today's world, we are bombarded by catastrophic events. We have to deal with the pressure and the worry of what might happen. Let me just give you a few examples. The rise of ISIS, the nuclear North Korea, 
an impeachment, the next election, our economy. Something called the coronavirus. Whether or not you can get the coronavirus by drinking Corona. It's no wonder that we're such an anxious people because we're constantly worried about what might happen next. And friends, it steals our joy. That's why I love what Montaigne, the philosopher, said. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. Someone else said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And I think that that's how Elijah feels in this story, right? Verse 4 says, Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Now, friends, verse 5 to me in the story of Elijah, this is one of the saddest verses that we read about this guy. I mean, he had been faithful. He had trusted God for the last three years. We have seen his strength. He trusted God. He was strong enough to confront King Ahab and Queen Jezebel about the worship of Baal. He was strong enough and had enough faith in God to confront Ahab and Queen Jezebel and tell them as long as the worship of Baal goes on, it's not going to rain in this country. He had faith enough and trust in God to go to this little brook called Cheroth where he had very little water and no food and he had to rely on God in order to feed him by ravens. He had trusted God and had enough faith that when God said it's time for you to move on from the brook of Cheroth to go to a town called Zarephath where you're going to meet someone who's going to take care of you and when he gets there he meets a widow who is about ready to die and make their last meal. He has enough faith to trust that God is going to take care of all of them through this process. He has enough faith and trust in God to say hey let's have a battle royale on top of Mount Carmel where we're going to see who the real living God is. He has enough faith and trust in God to call all of the nation of Israel to this mountain to watch this confrontation. He's outnumbered 450 to 1, but he's got the living God of Israel standing behind him and he has enough faith and trust in God to say, let's see what happens. And God delivers in an amazing way. Yet here he is. One woman's murderous threat sends him spiraling. And he's so exhausted and so tired and so worn out in his anxiety and in his fear, he asked God to take his life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so tired, so worn out, so broken that you just didn't want to live anymore? Have you ever uttered those words afraid that anyone else would ever come to find out that you are that far into the depths of despair. I have. And I think that many of you have. Because depression, anxiety, despair is crippling and it breaks us down to our knees and we feel like God doesn't love us or has forgotten about us. Well, if you've been there or you know somebody that has, I want to give you just five quick practical points about how we can deal with it from this text. First off, don't isolate yourself. Uh, verse 4 says, then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. Isn't it interesting that when we feel alone, 
when we feel sad or have anxiety that we just want to be alone, we push people away from us, uh, we don't want our friends to talk to us. Think of how nice it would have been. He travels a hundred miles and then he says, he leaves his servant there. He's gone from the northern kingdom all the way down to the southern kingdom about as far as he could go. And then he says, I just want to be alone. And he goes into the desert where he deals with his sadness. Wouldn't it have been great if he would have had a buddy next to him, his servant, say, hey, you know, Elijah, God has really been faithful to you. Think about all the ways he's provided. He had ravens come and... and bring you food. You didn't even have to order out to the Chinese restaurant. He took you to Zarephath and there, there was a lady and they provided food for you every day. Look what he did on Mount Carmel. Man, God is using you. He has not forsaken you. He is on your side and he is backing you up. Who cares about what this crazy lady says? But that's often what we do in those moments. We close ourselves off. We isolate ourselves. I think that maybe that's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4. He's talking about the resurrection. And he says, encourage each other with these words. He's saying, when you get down, when you're afraid, when you're stressed out, remember what the Lord has said. The church is meant to be a unifying force. It's meant to be a team. It's meant for us to, to lock arms and be together. And when we are sad, when we are downcast, when we don't know if we can move on any farther... The people of the church are supposed to come around each other and say, Hey, remember what God has promised us. Remember that heaven is waiting. Remember that Jesus is going to return one day. Remember that God will never leave you or forsake you. Remember that He's with you today regardless of what you're facing. So don't isolate yourself. The second thing is, and I know I'm going to get pushed back on this and that's okay. Just listen, you'll, you'll figure out where I'm going. But the second thing is take care of yourself. Verse 5 says, Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Listen, this dude is, emo- is, is exhausted emotionally, physically, spiritually, and mentally. And sometimes when we're fighting anxiety, what happens? Either we stress eat or we don't eat enough. We sleep too many hours or we don't sleep enough hours. As in, the ancient Greek proverb says, a bow always bent will soon break. And sometimes we don't want to take care of ourselves. We don't want to eat right. We don't, you know, we eat junk food, which is not going to make us feel better. We sleep all day or we don't sleep at all. And what happens to our bodies? We stress out even more. We become more thin bare. We don't have the strength or the, the, the resolve to go forward because physically we just can't. We all need to be rejuvenated sometimes. And God takes care of Elijah for him by helping him maintain a healthy lifestyle in the midst of, of his crazy, right? And you need to take care of yourself when you're in those situations. The third thing is we need to trust, and this is the second part of part two. Elijah was alone and he thought God had abandoned him, but notice that God never leaves him. What does God do when he's at his lowest and when he asks God to take his life? He sends angels to provide for him the food and the drink. And even though Elijah has to be the one to get up and take care of himself by eating that food and drinking the water, God says, hey, listen, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So you trust his word. 
You trust that he's going to pull you through the darkest times of your life. Now, the fourth one, admittedly, I pull out a, you know, it's not really in the text, but you're just going to have to listen to me because I'm up here and you're down there. So, it's get some sun. Listen, Elijah goes into the desert. He sits under a broom tree, um, which I understand was probably 100 degrees out. And he needed some shade. However, for us, there is benefit in getting sunshine. Did you know when you're depressed, what happens? We, we go into our little isolation cocoon. We close all of the blinds. We don't want to go anywhere. We don't eat well. We don't sleep well. And in that isolation, we just kind of wither on the vine. Sometimes it's good for us, just especially we live in Florida, man, to get outside and allow that sunshine to shine on your face. Any time that I've ever talked to my wife, Erica, about moving back north to the great state of Indiana or the lesser state that she came from, Michigan. <laughs> okay, come on, Michiganders, hold on. Anytime that happens, she reminds me, she says, Shane, seasonal affect disorder is real. You know what that is? When the skies get gray, so do you. Sometimes we just need to let that sunshine come down upon us. And besides, sunlight triggers the body's production of vitamin D, which is healthy for us. So when you're sad, don't just allow yourself to be isolated in a dark room. Get out and go for a walk. Pray to God, talk with Him. And that's the fifth thing. And the most important thing that I'm going to say today is talk with God. You know, my daughters are four and two, and they sing a little song called, Just a Little Talk with Jesus. Tell them all about your troubles. Blah, 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 blah. That's the Charlie Brown part of the song. <laughs> Listen, the Bible tells us in a verse that has been my life verse for many years until recently, you know, sometimes God changes our life verse. But Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 is so important for us. Write it down if you're struggling. This is a verse that has gotten me through some very dark times. It begins by saying, do not be anxious about anything. That's hard because all of us have to deal with anxiety at some point in our life. You can't avoid anxiety, but you can in you can avoid the prison of anxiety that is perpetual. What Paul is talking about when he says, do not be anxious, is he's talking about perpetual anxiety. Uh, he writes it in the active tense, which means an ongoing state. He's saying, don't continually be anxious in your life. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the action that's required of us is just to talk to God. Listen, if you think that God doesn't know what you're going through, you're missing the point. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. He knows what's going on deep inside of you. But... He wants to hear it from you because He wants to have a relationship with you. And when you tell Him about the good things and the bad things and the challenges, your relationship is being strengthened. Listen, one of the things we do <laughs> at lunchtime is because we love our kids and we want to know who they are and what's going on, is nothing. They can't color. They can't watch um, TuTube, which is basically YouTube for kids. They just call it TuTube. Until they tell us what their favorite thing in their day was and what the thing that was a challenge was. It's funny, my oldest child's figured out, figured out the formula, so she's like, my favorite thing was playing outside. Can I watch YouTube now? <laughs> but why do we do that? We want to know our children. 
We want to know what's going on in their life. God wants to know you. He wants to know what's going on in your life. And the result, he says, when we do that, when we talk with him, when we share with him, when we pour out our hearts to him, is that he will give us a peace that transcends all understanding that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, you would have had to live under a rock this week not to hear about Kobe Bryant's passing. It was about a year or a week ago. I can't remember if it was Saturday or last Sunday, but it's been on the news almost 24 hours. Kobe Bryant took a helicopter. He was 41 years old. He took his 13-year-old daughter there on their way to a basketball AAU tournament. Low fog, they crashed into the side of a mountain and died. When he died, he had been labeled as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He'd played 20 years in the NBA. He was worth over $600 million. Kobe Bryant had very little needs, very little wants. I'm sure that he didn't anticipate that his life would end at 41. I'm sure he never anticipated that his daughter, who was 13, would lose her life at the age of 13. All of that to say, listen, the moments that we have right now, the only moment you are guaranteed is right now, this moment. You could walk out at the end of the service and be hit by a double-decker bus that was transported here from England in order to give tours, and you wouldn't know that it was coming. You could die at the age of 13. You could die at the age of 75 or 120. We don't know how much life we have or what God has guaranteed, but you know that you have this moment. My mom wrote this on Facebook, and she doesn't follow sports, and so she doesn't know that that this was happening. But just kind of coincidentally, she had put this, quote, Those who died yesterday had plans for this morning, and those who died this morning had plans for tonight. Friends, this moment is a gift, and it deserves action. As Joe said a couple weeks ago, inaction has consequences as well as action. And friends, there are things that in our life we need to do right now to take the the tiger by the tail and not allow another day to pass. Some of us have said, I'll do it tomorrow, or I've got time. If you need to tell someone you love them, LeBron James said this the other night. He said, if you have kids, you hug them, you tell them that you love them. If you have a spouse, you hug them and you tell them that you love them. Your parents, whoever it is, you need to do that this moment as soon as you leave here today. Don't let another minute pass you by. If there's someone that you need to ask for their forgiveness, don't wait. Allow that. Then don't allow that, that, that difficulty or that frustration uh, to, to come between that relationship. Get that off your chest. Make it right. If there's somebody that you need to go to and have that, that inter, interdiction with or, or talk with them about something that's going on in your life, make sure you do that. If there's a friend that you haven't called in, in several weeks or seven years or several decades, make sure you do that. If there's someone who's struggling in this church that you know about and you are going to talk with them and love on them and minister to them t- tomorrow, don't wait. You don't know how much time you have. Your life could end in just a few moments. One of the ladies that I loved, uh, she was a battle axe man, but I like those battle axes. I was in a little church of 200. She, was, she had lost her husband who had been in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And she was tougher than him by, by half again as much. She was sitting in church one day at about the age of 85, and she had a heart attack and died. I can tell you for June, there was no other place she would rather have, have transitioned from this life to the next. But for some of you, you've never made a decision about Jesus Christ. 
You said, I'll wait until a better time. Um, I don't have the right clothes on. What about my hair? I want to wait till my family comes. I'm not living the right kind of life yet. I'm not perfect yet. Listen, you don't have to be perfect. None of us are. Listen, Joe and I tell each other all the time, the only two perfect people in the world are me and him. And sometimes I wonder about him. Jesus Christ offered his life so that you could live in eternity forever. It's a free gift. And right now you have the option today whether to accept it or not. Don't wait another moment. Kobe Bryant was 41 years old. His daughter was 13. I guarantee that they thought they had many more days and years and decades to make decisions. Following the service, we're going to have decision teams over here. We're going to have prayer teams over here, prayer warriors who will pray for you. If you're struggling with anxiety or depression, man, let them help you through whatever challenge you face. I don't know what you're going to choose today. But as Elijah said, my God is Yahweh. And for me and my family, that's who we're going to serve. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. We just ask, God, that you would help anybody who's struggling mightily today with anxiety, with fear, depression. We pray, dear Jesus, that you would remind us that you're with us every step of the way. Lord, give us the boldness and courage today to do what we're scared to do. Help us to make the decisions, especially if it's following you, the trust to have, so that we'll never have to question what eternity is going to look like. We love you, Jesus. We're thankful for your sacrifice. God, thank you for sending your son. We pray for your power today and your strength and your courage. It's in Jesus' name we pray.